0: This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, guys. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. Before we get into it with my friend Henry Hyde of Hyde Handmade, Let's just talk about a couple sponsors. Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all-natural, food-safe wax for your axe. It's definitely the best stuff around. All-natural, food-safe. Perfect for your carbon steel, your stainless steel, for your wood, for your G10, for your leather, for your hair, for your hair. Whatever you got, it's, it's stuff for you. And if you go to if you go to if you go to Axwax.us. Put in promo code fullblast Ten. You're going to get ten percent off your order. And if you are in the UK, go to UKKnifeSupplies.com and you put in. Uh, they'll take Full Blast Ten. Are you hearing me? Is this? Am I going in and out? No, I can hear you, Henry, All right. You go to UKKnifeSupply.com. Put in promo code fullblast Ten, and they're going to give you ten percent off. If you're in the EU, uh, KnifeMaterial.at is taking Full Blast Ten. GammaCo uh, is taking Full Blast 10 in Australia. NordicEdge.com.au is taking Full Blast 10, uh, and they're great. So go get yourself some of that Axe Wax. Next is Total Boat. Total Boat is a great company that makes adhesives, paints, primers, and polishing compounds. They make great two part epoxies, uh, slow cure, and uh, high performance uh, epoxies that I love. I think they're great. And guys like Keith Decent, Derek Formald, and Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell, Jimmy Durest are all using Total Boat. And I really think that Knife Maker should give it a try because it's really good. And it's good quality stuff, especially if you're laminating scales together, or bedding tangs, or putting you know your tangs in your putting your tangs in your handles go get some of that uh, total boat and if you go to totalboat.com put in promo code fullblast10 you're going to get 10% off your order so go get yourself some total boat give it a try the good guys are going to be at uh, maker camp and we're going to have some fun with them Um, and it's they make great stuff a lot of people are using it in the maker community and I appreciate total boat for their support Next is Trojan Horse Forge. Trojan Horse Forge makes this stable rail knife finishing vise. And I was just on the phone with those guys, uh, and it's a great company there in Texas. And they made these knife finishing vices that are really great. They're great for hand sanding the blades. They're also great for uh, the handles. And I know what you're saying. Hand sanding blades? They have these aluminum plates that that bolt into uh, the, the vise, and then they'll support your knife. So even if you have a distal taper, there, there are pins that allow you to support the distal taper or an integral bolster. Or if you've got a curved knife, like a kukri or something, you can use the stable rail knife finishing vise for all your hand sanding. And when you're done and you got all taped up and you put on that handle, you turn it around after it's glued up. And then you can 360 your handle. You can really get to work on all sides of that handle. It's great. I love the uh, the Trojan Horse Forge uh, Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vice, and the guys have been real good. And I'm really excited about the, uh, getting another one because I got we got so we got so many things going on here. To, you know, One is one, one, is none, and two is one, and one is none, Henry, if you know what I'm talking about. So go get yourself that stable rail knife finishing vise uh, if you go to trojanhorseforge.com, and then you can find out their batches. They do in their batches, and they, they'll even put your name on it. They, they'll laser engrave your name on it. So go to trojanhorseforge.com, and if you buy one of their uh, knife finishing vices, you put in the promo code full Blast. you're going to get free shipping in the U.S., What's the big deal? So great stuff, and they also have payment plan options, so you don't have to lump it all out in one shot. I would highly suggest getting this. This is probably one of my favorite tools uh, for, for, for hand sanding, for knife finishing. We're, like I, I've been saying it, but once I'm saying it again, my, every knife that comes out of my shop is on the stable rail knife finishing vice two times. one when I'm hand sanding the blade, or David's hand sanding the blade, or when we're doing the uh, finishing the handle. So go get yourself done of that Trojan horse forge. Last but not least, I want to thank Maritime Knife Supply. Lawrence has been amazing at MaritimeKnifeSupply.ca. They're a Canadian knife uh, supply company, and they're also shipping a lot of stuff to the United States. So besides the fact that they have competitive pricing with all the other uh, knife supply guys, they're also becoming very competitive in terms of how they're shipping stuff. So if you are interested in abrasives, steels, kilns, forges, presses, heat-treating ovens, anvils, Dr. Laren Thomas's book is in stock at uh, Maritime Knife Supplies. They even have Axe Wax. They have Axe Wax, too. So when you're in Canada, go check it out or the United States. I just got a package. I ordered a package from uh, Maritime Knife Supply, and it came just as fast as any other American knife supply company uh, sends their stuff. And if you get uh, their abrasive belt packs of 10 they're going to give you 10% off your order which is great and it makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense and he is Lawrence is very very uh he's very very supportive of the maker community he's very supportive of the knife making community he's also a knife maker and he's very uh, supportive of the podcasting community so i definitely appreciate all he's done uh, for, he's been the sponsor of a lot of podcasts, including knife talk and a lot of our friends too. So he's a good man and he's trying to do some good stuff for the community. So I definitely appreciate it. And he's got stuff like there's all the TR maker equipment. Uh, the, uh, TR maker makes great bevel jigs. They make some great, uh, uh, file guides. You can get everything from, uh, Maritime Knife Supply. Go check out their website because he just told me they're getting thirty-eight thirty-nine hundred pounds of steel just came in, and more's on the way. So if it's the cutting-edge stuff, he's on top of it. So maritimeknifesupply.com. All right, okay, okay. I had the pleasure of meeting my guest was six months ago or something like that. Henry Hyde is a very fascinating young man. He is out of Baltimore. He's a great knife maker, and I had a great time hanging out with him at the Center for Mental Arts. And Henry Henry Hyde, how the fuck are you? I'm am doing very
1: well. Thank you very very much for asking and having me on.
0: Well, we had a good time down at CMA, and uh, you're a very you you have a very interesting history um, as a knife maker. Uh, at, actually, I think before I met you, I got a message from Quentin Middleton. And Quentin Middleton says, "My apprentice is going to be in your class." That's the text. That's the whole text. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Oh, who's that?" And he goes, "Henry Hyde." You, you, you. Quentin Middleton is one of the more, probably one of the most important modern-day that kind of new generation knife maker in the United States, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. How did you get involved with with Quentin? Um
1: I used to live down in Charleston and uh, I went to college down there for business and to get my beer and weed money, I cooked in kitchens down there and (laughs) uh, hated every second. Well, not every second, but, you know, four out of five seconds of it. And, um, I started sharpening knives, the people I worked with, because obviously cooks don't take care of their fucking knives. And, um one day just thought you know let's make a let's try making a knife so i tried to look up all the classes and there was nothing near me uh, i tried to look up looking up makers and i contacted a couple of people including quentin and uh quentin was the only one that got back to me unsurprisingly hmm. and um was just like hey come by my shop and we'll we'll uh you know we'll make a knife uh but I I remember first, he was like, look up these three steels and tell me the chemical composition of them, like how much chromium, how much iron, shit like that. And um, so I did that, and I actually was able to like rattle off all the numbers. I don't know if I got it right, but I think just like the confidence of like 2% cobalt, 3% magnesium, he was, you know, and we made that knife and... Um, at the end of that, while I was getting in my car, Quentin was just like, hey, man, do you want to be my apprentice? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so um,
0: he did the riddle of the Sphinx to make sure that you were actually going to like give a shit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing he said to me was like something that um, his mentor, Jason Knight, was telling to him. He was like, you know, if you're serious, I'm serious. So I was like, you know, I'm looking for any way I can get out of kitchens and this you know, seems almost you know like if I fuck this up, you know, I'm gonna be in kitchens for a lot goddamn longer.
0: Right. It's it's interesting because you know speaking with Quentin, I guess we, he and I talked about almost two years ago, and I've I've talked to him a lot. I I I'm fascinated by Quentin, and I and I heard his his backstory is fascinating too because of his, how he got, how his, he just happened to be, happened to meet Jason Knight. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jason Knight, he was, Quentin's, Quentin Middleton is working in a knife shop, you know, selling like, you know, probably, it's probably like at a, I th- I'm under the impression, I, I can't remember exactly, but it was like a mall knife shop or something mm-hmm. like that. Quentin Middleton, uh, Jason Knight walks in, starts rattling around, they start talking, next thing you know, you know, he comes to visit and, you know, all of a sudden he's, the student of Jason Knight, who's, you can't get much better than that. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated with the story because when I, I heard you on that podcast, that great Baltimore podcast, I'm going to link into that. What was the name of it? What uh, is the getting name to of the podcast? Truth of This Art. The Getting to the Truth of This Art is a great podcast. It's up Baltimore Locals, and I'll link this his uh, the, the interview that you had with, with them on it. What was interesting to me is when I was listening to your story in regards to meeting Quentin Your story kind of reminded me, and take this however you want, reminded me of Bob Kramer's story. Because Bob Kramer started out in kitchens, and nobody wanted to sharpen their knives, and then he was sharpening his knives. And he started out as a knife sharpener, and that's how he got into knife making.
1: Well, I mean, that's a very kind comparison to compare me to Bob Kramer,
0: well, that's a... I mean, but that's the. That's how he got his yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's exactly how... I mean, you can talk to most culinary guys who got involved in knife-making, and that is... I think Mert... You could kind of... Mert, Mert Tansu had a little difference of a story, but it isn't... I mean, yours is kind of closer to Bob Kramer's story. hmm So, when you started as an apprentice to Quentin, what was the first things he had you do? Uh. Um...
1: I mean, I remember almost splitting my finger down half with uh, one of his bandsaws because uh, <laughs> I, I had never really worked with power tools before. Um, and he had me, like, splitting splitting blocks into scales and then cutting those scales to the handle shape because Quentin makes a pretty, like, standardized product. Um, so he has his, like, um, he has his echo line. So uh, we were kind of working on that and some of his... Other stuff he also gets it all water jet, so he just you know slaps the handles on and grinds the the blades and everything so um, it started with that, but um, quickly after that, you know like two months after I started and I was coming down just on the weekend or like during the week, and um, he had like back surgery, so he was out of the shop right. for like six to eight months. But really like my apprenticeship with Quentin was like over text pretty much. I uh, Quickly after I I became his apprentice, I moved um, to just outside of Charleston and I got this little like shitty shed. I found this house like the only reason that I wanted to live there because it had a shed in the backyard. And I essentially like ripped the thing apart and then built my workshop out of that and like wired it from the house totally illegally. Yeah, and set the ground set the floor on fire almost killed myself with carbon monoxide poisoning like but i was getting started and just kind of like bringing my not just showing my knives to quentin over text and saying he was saying like do this do that this is right that's wrong um but like you know the fact that like he stayed on with me even though i wasn't coming into his shop and then like that was really important to me. But then it was also like the fact that I stuck with it, even though he wasn't there, I think really like kind of enamored each other, had us like enamored towards each other with like, he knew I was serious and I just appreciated that he
0: was still talking to me. Honestly. He's, he's one of the most genuine people I've ever met. Yeah, And I remember the first time I met him was at blade show. It must've been like, I would think maybe even five years ago, something like that. And he, we recognize each other and he, you know, he's, he was, he had ski, he had ski poles or hiking poles hmm. when he goes around back because he got back problems. Yeah. And, um, he just gave me this big hug and we had this real nice conversation. And look, he's just a, he's just an incredible guy. I think that a lot of it comes from his spirituality. Mm-hmm. I think it comes from a lot from his culture in, in, in the Carolinas. Mm-hmm. And He's just he's. A, I think that he's underrated. Be honest with you. I agree. If you if you if you want to talk about important knife makers in the United States, and if you and if Quentin Middleton's name is not in the mix, I think that you're. I think it's a mistake. I think he's one of the most underrated knife makers at his level that there is. Yeah,
1: I agree. I just think that his work ethic is just beyond. I, I anything that I can, can even aspire to. You know, he's getting out there with the with the limitations that he has with his back and still working full days where he's standing on his feet the whole time and just like and just his spirit like he's always like happy to see you happy to yeah happy to help like just such a genuinely nice person
0: how when you so i mean the other thing is I'm, i'm just out of curiosity when you're in you're in college for business yeah And you're, you're entering the knife making world, not as a, from a YouTube standpoint. Like a lot of guys are like, they have jobs or they're doing something and then they get into it because they watch YouTube videos. You're coming at it out of the business end. I mean, not the business end, but you have more experience from a little bit of business from school. How are you seeing, how are you seeing the knife making world from, from that perspective?
1: I mean, I think I'm only kind of like starting to take the business side seriously at this point. Um... Yeah, and I mean, like talking to you and talking to guys like uh, Nick An- Nick Anger and like about kind of I, I don't know it I I I kind of went to college because I had to. I was told my parent, my dad was always like, you know, you got to go to college regardless of what you do.
0: Right.
1: I was like you. I wanted to join the Marines out of high school because I grew up in a very like structureless not structureless, but I was a, you know, kind of an unsupervised child and, uh, I needed that structure and I went to college and tried NROTC and hated it and realized that it wasn't for me, that it was too much structure or the wrong kind of structure or something like that. So, you know, like I went to business school because I was good at numbers and I could say stuff to people and convince, you know, like I had no shame in speaking. So, um, I think I've but like I wish I could go to business school now rather than then, so that I right. could actually like retain some of that knowledge rather than frying yeah. my brain with weed
0: <laughs> well, that's the problem with college when you're young yeah. it's almost as if it, it's almost like we've got it all backwards, and maybe people should be going to college in their thirties, yeah, I agree because because it's like i I hated math, and then when I started working in a metal shop, I had to learn how to read a tape measure and then when we were building railings, all of a sudden you're, 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 you're relying on math. And then when the math is right, everything works out. And you kind of like, I get a new appreciation for math. You know, I, I see a lot of people saying, I don't know why I took algebra algebra. I don't took a, I don't know why I took all this math. And all of a sudden you're coming up with these math issues. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I really should have paid more attention to math. Mm -hmm. But that's a, I mean, that's just part of, that's the best part of getting older is when you can realize, "Ah, I fucked up when I was younger, but now I'll take care of it now.
1: Yeah. For sure,
0: but with that said, I mean, you going to you going to be in college for business. I mean, you hooked up with not. You know, it's interesting because Quentin hooked up with with Jason Knight, and Jason Knight is Jason Knight. Mm-hmm. I he I don't know necessarily, and I'm speaking out of tune. I'm speaking out of turn, and this is not this is my impression that like business wasn't really his first part of his 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 jason knight company like he wants to make beautiful knives and do his thing and be on his own terms and that's something that a lot of people can't afford to do he can because he's just he's awesome Mm -hmm. the fact that you went with that you were able to kind of hook up with someone who is incredibly business-minded like quentin is probably one of the more if i were to i could list off about five guys who are like Business people, really awesome business people in the knife making world, and Quinton's on it, easy. Yeah, I agree. easy. So when you're seeing the construction of knives, it isn't like the it isn't like the uh, it isn't like the joyous art of making knife knives. It's backfilled with the history and the economics of making business. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely. That was kind of my impression when I got to Quentin's shop. It was just kind of like his his drive to make his business work was his first priority rather than I mean like his knives are exquisite and beautiful and he puts a whole lot of care and experience into these knives but like I think first and foremost I think he realizes that like if he can't sell them there's no point in make I mean like maybe not but like you know it's more about like you know like putting food on the table and like paying bills and his like business mind is like, you know, you've got to be in business in this, or it just won't really work in the long term.
0: I'm going to have to have him back on, but I just remember that one of the first people, the first younger people I've seen in newspapers and magazines in regards to knife making was Quentin. Yeah. I mean, I'd seen Bob Kramer before, and I'd seen a few other people, but like Quentin was like one of the first young guns to kind of like make it. And he's been making knives for 20 years mm-hmm. and he's like, he's younger than he's on. He you don't even think he's 40 yet. So it's like, he's been at it for quite a while. He's been in the game for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me is when I look at your knives, I am pleasantly surprised that you're, you're that Quentin has n- almost, I would say has no influence on your work, which is great because I think a lot of times when people are st- students under different knife makers or different craftspeople, or even not just knife making, you know, sculpt, you know, if you're working for an artist or you're working for a sculptor, you're, even if you're a teacher or whatever, you're our teacher or whatever, you become very influenced by their work. And when I look at your work, and I have one of the Clintons Quentin's Echo Knives, mm-hmm. I got it in the beginning of the pandemic, I was in this mood where I was just like, I'm going to support my friends. Mm-hmm. And I got one of the Echo knives, and part of me wonders if you worked on it, but I, I'm not. We don't know. We, we'll just pretend that you did. We'll pretend that you mm-hmm. did. You don't have a lot of the Quentin Middleton uh, design. There's no like fingerprint of his design in your work. Um,
1: I mean, I I don't really know. I mean, I I think my handles are very inspired by him. I think he has a lot of like flowing lines in his handles um and then like i think i mean he taught me how to like sculpt handles so a lot of the stuff that i'm doing still to this day are exactly the way that quentin taught me
0: yeah but the shape and it's in and of itself i mean you do primarily the knives you do you do forged knives yeah. and they're all hidden tang knives yeah. you're not doing full tang no, knives. Do any. but his handles are are more full time. They're closer to my handles. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, or my handles are closer to Quentin's handles. Yours have much more. Uh, they're much more subtle. But I couldn't. If like if if you put a group of people and in, in say who was inspired by Quentin, you, I would never pick your work. I would. I can't see the fingerprint. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see a lot of people's fingerprints on you know the David Lish style knife, and there's other people who have you know there are these very small. You know hints, yeah. hints at where where it came from. But the fact that the only knife maker you ever worked for, you didn't really kind of. You might have learned the techniques, but I mean your style is your own. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Well, don't you think so? Um, I mean, I think it's the
1: same thing. What you say about why knives aren't art? Like we're all just kind of copying each other. So, um, I couldn't tell you. Necessarily, who I am copying. I think I look at Japanese makers and American makers and try to get whatever inspiration I can from both.
0: The knives aren't art thing is very. When I started that whole thing, it was to be controversial without being like Mm -hmm. we're not talking about abortion here. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't. It was the easiest controversy of all time. And my bigger problem with it is, and and it's funny because. Um that was my deal for quite some time, and I know I got a lot of people angry. I got Marek- I think Marekka was deeply hurt the first time I said it, and and I obviously that was not something I meant to do, but at the same time it's like, you know, we're running a podcast here, we got we gotta ruffle some feathers. Mm-hmm. I, I found myself thinking it more along the lines of coming from art school or art critique, where you're really supposed to defend your work in the sense of not just what is art. But being able to say this is what I'm doing, and I and 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 I believe that my intentions were successful. Mm-hmm. I think that to me, like when somebody says I make art, and they make a, and they hand me a knife, and, and I want them to explain a little bit more. And when they can explain a little bit more, then I'm just like, okay, fine, no problem, I'm with you. But it's just like just saying it's art it's just it's just not good enough. I just want a little bit more. These are my these are my directions. This is my design. This is my intention. This is what I was trying to get across, and did I do it? It's up to the viewer to decide or not. You know, you can you can say, you know, Duchamp you made a urinal into a art and he explained it away and people accepted it. So I'm I want I just wish I wish the interesting thing is most knife makers are not they don't, they don't express themselves verbally as well as I wish they had. Sure. But, you know, at the same time, my art professor, who I leaned on for years and years and years, told me my knives are art, and that blew my whole fucking story right out of the water. <laughs> so, so, when, when you growing up, you grew up in in Baltimore?
1: I grew up in Central Maryland, Howard County area, and I also grew up kind of like on the bay, kind of like going between the two, because I had family in the whole area, so we kind of, would I went to school in central Maryland and then I spent a lot of more, a lot more of like my non-school time down on the Bay, kind of like just North of Annapolis.
0: What was it like growing up in, in, I know we know a few knife makers. I mean, Matt Stagmer lives in, I think he lives a few blocks. I think he lives like 10 minutes from Camden Yards. I think, I think he told me that, but what was it like growing up in
1: Maryland? Um, boring i don't know um really yeah i mean like not really i feel like maryland's like we're kind of like in the middle of the beltway between you know like dc and kind of feel like trapped by all like 95 and uh when i went to college i just wanted to get out of the state just because it's a small state and you know i yeah living in the center of it you know you visit around and i know a lot of people stayed and a lot of people left and I don't know when you leave Maryland you get like this crazy Maryland pride where like everything is Old Bay everything you wear has the Maryland flag on it like right. you know um and uh yeah I mean it was fine I guess
0: <laughs> Well it's it's I I've talked about this a lot because um back to we you and I were talking off air about Jeff trauma mm-hmm. I growing up in New York City I had, you know, my, my dad and his wife really wanted nothing to do with me, and my mother was kind of gone. Mm-hmm. So I was referred to as a latchkey kid. Yeah. And if I lived, if I had the same situation in a place that there was nowhere to go... I would have been a completely different person, and I was talking to I was talking to another native New Yorker. It's kind of hard. the weird thing is it's hard to meet native New Yorkers. Like that, you just you just don't do it. But when you do, you realize that, especially growing up in the eighties and the nineties, I was New York was like a a foster parent to me, Mm -hmm. and I don't think that I would have been the person that I am if I didn't have the place that I lived. And so easy to get around. I didn't have to have a car. I mean, I didn't get a driver's license until I was in college, because when you live in New York, you don't need a driver's license. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that was crazy. I didn't get a driver's license until I was 21, which is crazy. Yeah. But in most people, like most people get at 16. Oh, what the fuck do I need a driver's license for? I'm not driving anywhere. And um, I did drive illegally, but I mean, but, uh, but I wasn't like, it just didn't really cross my mind. Didn't even think, I didn't even think I needed a driver's license until I realized I needed it for ID and stuff. I think that what's interesting is is where you are has such a huge relationship to who you're going to be in the sense of it sounds to me as if you were ready to go to college. What, what made you want to go to the Carolinas, North Carolina, South, South Carolina? Carolina. Oh, South Carolina. Um,
1: well, I was also a latchkey kid from when I was in sixth grade. I think I started walking home every day. Because my mom owned her own business, so she worked late. And my dad worked in the D.C. area, so he also had to tr- commute two hours each way. Um, so, you know, stuff like that, family trauma, etc. Um, I just wanted to get as far away from it, I guess, as possible. Yeah, And yeah, being a latchkey kid in rural Maryland is like walking Brutal. home um i don't know yeah not a lot to do so kind of the opposite you sit at home and do nothing i got fat as a kid and that's probably why um <laughs> um so moving down to south carolina i mean like um my dad sails a lot so obviously charleston's a port city so it's a good stopping place and uh he was like, you know, you can apply to any college you want as long as you apply to the College of Charleston, which is where I went. And,
0: uh, is that where he went?
1: No, no, no. Um, he just liked it because he had a friend down there. So he'd go visit them. And he was like, oh, there's beautiful women coming out of the woodworks. And, um, I had really no direction wanting to go into college. I just, you know, I, uh, was kind of just like, you know, I have to go to college, so I might as well go somewhere that's nice. So, you know, it's like, you know, I can, I looked at schools up in Ohio, I looked at um, Denison um, and went in like March and it was like 35 degrees. And, you know, I imagine like, you know, you get blackout drunk as a student there and you like pass out in the wrong spot and you freeze to death.
0: It's pretty bad in Ohio. College in Ohio is pretty bad. So
1: yeah, like and then you know going Cold, down, yeah, going down to Charleston. It was like you know my spring break. It was like eighty degrees. You know, I know you know like I was taking final exams in flip flops. Like during right before Christmas break, and I'm just like can't ask for anything better.
0: No. Well, it's interesting because I, there's such an interesting, there's such a, gr- a great history. Of Charleston in the in the food scene, mm-hmm. and I just wonder how you got involved with deciding to work in restaurants. Was it just because you just needed to make a couple bucks? Or? No,
1: that's a kind of a long story. Um, I started uh, taking Chinese classes, Mandarin Chinese, in ninth grade because I was taking French and couldn't speak a lick of it after five years of taking it, and Chinese, um just kind of like clicked with me i guess it made sense huh. uh, there's no conjugation there's no like past tense and future tense it's all just like you add a word for it huh. so that's actually what i went to chinese i went to biz, i went to school for international business with a minor in asian studies just cuz i was good at math and i could do the numbers on like a profit and loss sheet you know stuff like that
0: i thought you were going to say on an, I and i thought know, like, like business, on an... you were going to say business
1: yeah like if i can speak chinese really well i might as well do business cuz that's kind of what chinese china was known for at the time and I thought
0: you were going to say that you're good at with an abacus. <laughs> yeah. That that would have been.
1: And I was um, awesome with an abacus. So yeah, and then I was taking Chinese and uh, traveling in China because uh, I had uh, I was an international business major, so you have to have a uh, internship, and I just was like, I might as well intern in China. So I went and lived in Beijing for two months, wow. and uh, realized that I fucking hate working in an office because it was just like. Watching and watching a clock on the wall all day long until I got to leave. But the best part of the day was, you know, like the food that I was coming into contact with for the first time or well, technically I've traveled to China five times, but and that was like <laughs> the fourth time, but in the I was on my own at that time. So I was like living in Beijing by myself, getting around, speaking Chinese, um, eating all this food, all the foods that like the food truck scene in China and like the restaurant scene was just amazing. And I was like, you know, I'd love to have some of this back at home. Cause it's, I mean like Charleston's no New York city. There's no Chinatown or anything like that, but there's an amazing food scene. So like, you know, uh, I was like, I might as well start working in restaurants if I want to like kind of start exploring this. Cause this is what interests me. So I started working in restaurants, I started shucking oysters for my first job uh, and then moved around because I got fired a bunch because I was a shitty employee <laughs> and
0: um, then I got into knives. So back it up a little bit. What was it like what was it like the first time you went to China? First time I went to
1: China was in 2011 so I was uh, 16. Um, and it's changed a lot. Since the first time and the last time I went, which was twenty seventeen, I think, and um, you know, going from rural Maryland to Beijing with a population of twenty eight million, I think, Jeez. was it's it's a huge culture shock. And then, like you know, um, biggest city I've ever been to. I mean, I've been I've been all over China. I've been from Beijing to Hong Kong, and then like from the East coast all the way over to Xinjiang province, which is like the border of Pakistan. I was like 15 miles from the border of Pakistan. Um, it's insane. It's a whole different world.
0: How is your, how at the time when you're 16, how is your Chinese? Terrible. Um, okay. How, when did your Chinese get to the point where you started to kind of enjoy, enjoy it? I mean, like I was
1: just not a very good student in, cause I mean, like I had undiagnosed ADHD and, <laughs> um, I really only you know latched on the things that interest me so it was chinese and sculpture class um and uh i mean like i knew i was good because i was catching on to it faster than people around me um which was a nice feeling so it kind of like i stuck with it so i stuck with it for seven years and by the time i was in college i was conversationally fluent
0: Did you feel like there was an opportunity for you to go there and to live for a while? Yeah,
1: I mean, like, if I wanted to work in offices for the rest of my life, yeah, I probably could have done it. But, like, the problem was is also my sophomore year of college, like, the first month I got into sophomore year, I got a dog. So it was, like, kind of shooting myself in the foot for working abroad, you know? Right. Do you still speak
0: Chinese or Um,
1: Mandarin? It's not as—I'm rusty on it now, but— I still I still can think – I can still, like, you know, come up with things. I can still kind of speak and stumble my way through it. And if I studied, I could pick it all back up.
0: So, in your mind, when you started to go in the restaurant pathway, did you think that you wanted to own a restaurant? Yeah, or yeah. I thought I wanted to
1: open up my own kind of, like – I mean, I think that the conversation in restaurants has changed now, like, and it's, like, you know, that would have been – I think now would have been maybe a little bit problematic with, like, cultural appropriation and – right you know, cooking a cuisine that wasn't mine. Although I was trying to do it like respectfully and, but still. um, And, you know, like very quickly when I worked in restaurants, I saw how absolutely toxic it was. Like that was, I I worked um, kind of like still before, obviously the pandemic when things have changed labor wise, but still like at that time, people that I worked with were coming in an hour before they got started getting paid because there was just so much prep to do. Right. So it was like I I don't have a choice other than to not get paid for this or I won't have all of my me's done by service, which is like the worst possible case.
0: There's a um, there's a really good episode, it's a recent episode of the David Chang podcast, which I think is a good. I think it's a good podcast if you want to listen to opinions. Mm-hmm. It's not a good podcast if you want to learn about cooking (laughs) because he just doesn't – he just – he doesn't really help in that regard. He talks about – there's one episode where he talked about the 52 best things he's ever eaten, and that was a good episode. But he was recently talking about the show The Bear. Yeah. And the interesting thing – and I'm sure you've seen it or parts of it. Yeah. The most fascinating – his fascinating take was about – and then The the, the Bear is this whole, you know, if you haven't seen the show The Bear – You know, you got to do it. It's, 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 it's hard for a lot of people to watch. He was saying two things. He was saying the, one of the best things that they replicate, that they focused on in the restaurant business was time. Mm -hmm. And in the first episode, he said, I only watched the first episode. And in the, in the first episode, they captured something that was so subtle, but so restaurant oriented, which is the fact that the clock never stops. Mm -hmm. And you're constantly looking at the clock in terms of how things are, how much time do we have to get this done, or how much time until service, or how long is it going to take me to make this, and I need to do this. And it was this concept of being prepared for service. And it was like how, how, uh, the word ain't tragic. It's, it's more like how the time doesn't stop at all, and you're, you just have to do whatever it takes. And that's something that, I don't think anyone ever will realize that. And you obviously saw that. You know, guys are coming an hour early just because they just didn't want to be in the weeds. Yeah,
1: and I mean, like I was watching it and getting like that, like that sense of dread, that anxiety, yeah. like peripherally, like through through the show, I was feeling that anxiety that you feel at like at at five fifteen, the doors open at five thirty, and you're like,
0: oh fuck it's that the restaurant industry my my biggest nightmares were always i had real nightmares like i'd sleep and then i'd have this terrible nightmare and it was always waves crashing over mm-hmm. me and waves just never, I was like on the beach and these waves are just unrelenting crashing to me. And then the waves turn into the, they're the customers coming through the door and they're never going to stop. And it doesn't matter if the, you know, you're, when you're open, they're coming in and you can't get a break and you can't catch your breath. And I was being drowned by the customers. Yeah. Like I was being, it was, it was a drowning feeling. And I had that dream all the time. Of and it's I don't think it's anything and and it, what it does is it, it it's funny you know you know I talk about this but all I'm I'm imagining all of your ideas of like starting this Chinese inspired restaurant are like fucking thrown out the window because all of a sudden it's like that's just not the way it works yeah.
1: you know I mean yeah the I mean I, the the ticket the ticket printing machine was my was my nightmare is just hearing that that sound over and over again
0: I think that that last the second to last episode was the most and I know people who won't watch they they watched the first episode and they had panic attacks. Yeah, me so. or, yeah, you know'm saying it. I'm saying panic attacks like I'm being kind of you know yeah yeah extra it's not really people aren't really having but it, it was the I guess the second last episode where the Fucking the the ticket machine is going off and he, everything's falling apart and it's just like he's unraveling and he's unraveling in service and everyone is like kind of against him and they hate him and it it was so real mm-hmm. and the, the restaurant industry actually I remember when I was running at the, I was running a restaurant in Alva for a while and I was miserable and I was miserable and the chef's brother would come in and sit at the bar every so often and i didn't really i didn't really know him very well and i just knew him as the chef's brother and he was and i was so um uh, you know it was hard for me to sit down and be friendly to anybody because i was just so there were so many things i had to do it was, just, it was out my face was outwardly under you know not i was not putting on an act i was like I was miserable because there were so many things that needed to be done in the restaurant. And I just remember him seeing me while I was filling up a, I don't know, filling up a glass of water or something like that. And he just says, you just don't look like you want to be here. I don't think this is for you. Mm-hmm. And I just looked at him. And I'm like, I wanted to say, go fuck, fuck you, man. I'm doing the best I can here. But I was like, I walked and I was like, yeah, well, you never know. And I walked away and I was just like, hey, he's, he's fucking mm-hmm. right. I'm miserable here. Yeah. I'm totally miserable here. Yep. And uh, it, it all the ideas of the... People have these ideas of like, you know, Casablanca and, and the having your own restaurant. It's your own place, and you can sit down and you can be. It's your. It's a certain breed who can handle that kind of life.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, like I had one of those like traumatic restaurant weeks. The night, the week that I decided that that Chinese restaurant was never going to happen. Got broken up with by my long term girlfriend on like a Monday, and then got oh. fired from my job on a Thursday. Jesus, um, <laughs> was just like, yeah, I'm I'm done with this. But I kept working in restaurants for like another two years after that. But that was kind of like the the day that I decided that like I got to get out of this.
0: The, was that must have been like the lowest point? I can't I can't think of it. Too, I mean, two like big things, big things in your life like that happening. Yeah. I'm not sure. Well, to, I mean, I'm the second thing
1: was kind of caused by the first one. I was just right. so miserable from the breakup that like the, right. you know, like I wasn't really working all that well. And they were just like, mm. just the same thing. Like, you don't seem like you want to be here. And I'm like, well, yeah. And they were just like, they let me work through the whole lunch service, and then at the end of it, they're just like, you're fired. And I was like, thanks,
0: That's guys. the move. That's the move. I actually, one of the first and only people I ever, one of the first people, not the only person, one of the first people I had to fire, that I was told to fire this person at the end of service. Yeah. You know, you don't you don't just let someone leave in the middle of, I'll tell you a, a story, a crazy story that happened years ago. And this is not the restaurant business, but in terms of somebody getting fired. I was going to this barber in town who I've become friendly with, and he was became so booked up that he had to get guys to come in to cut hair. And I came in, I made an appointment, I came in, I'm sitting at the barber, you know, the, not the main guy, but the next barber down, and I, I'm talking to the guy, and it was like the hot place to be, and the guy was real nice, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm, the barber's cutting my hair. He sounds a little bit, something's weird, something's just like not right. And as he's cutting my hair, I just start to kind of like, I kind of, you feel their hands, you know, you feel their hands, how their hands are on the back of your head, Mm -hmm. you know, and it started just getting slower and slower. And then I just, in the mirror, I just caught him kind of closing his eyes. Mm -hmm. And I said, I said, are you okay? And then the barber, the main barber saw it, went over, took him to the back, fired him in the middle of my haircut and then he says, I need you to get out of here. I don't want you to say another word. I need you to get out of here. He was on drugs. The guy who was cutting my hair was completely yeah. on drugs. Like, and I said to him, I'm like, he was talking kind of weird beforehand. And next thing you know, he's just like, he was nodding out in the middle of my haircut. Mm. And then the barber, the main barber, took him to the back, quietly told him to get the fuck out and don't say a goddamn word. You know, don't <laughs> cause a scene. He threw him out in the middle of my haircut. The guy left the door. The barber locked the door, finished his hair. He turns to me and he goes, just hold what you got. I'm going to I'm gonna finish this guy's haircut and I'm going to get you squared away. Yeah. And then it was the most bizarre. I'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah. The talk about getting fired in the middle of service. He getting fired in the middle of my haircut. Yeah. It was crazy. I got
1: fired like, in the middle of service one time. Um, you did? Yeah.
0: <laughs> what kind of crazy things did you do to get fired in the middle of I service? stole from a customer. How did you, what did you mean you stole from a customer? Uh, yeah. Is this a story you want to tell yeah, yeah, or it's not?
1: That's cool. I, I've told this story a lot of times. Um, the first restaurant I ever worked at was this really nice seafood place in Charleston. Um, and I shucked oysters. And uh, so it was like the oyster bar, there was the oyster bar and then there was the bar. It's kind of in an L shape. So customers would sit at the oyster bar and like watch you shuck oysters and be like, don't stab yourself. And you'd be like, ha 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 ha. And, um, this couple comes in and perfectly nice, whatever. They sit down and while I'm checking oysters, I look up and I see the guy pull a flask out of his jacket and he starts drinking out of it in the restaurant and drinking at the restaurant at like the drinks that he ordered. Uh, about like 45 minutes to an hour later, the guy is fucking shit faced and he reaches around the glass that's like the sneeze guard for the oysters and puts his flask in the ice to like keep it cool. Ugh. And Gross. Um, so he's so drunk that he forgets his flask there. And this is like maybe like three months into working in restaurants for the first time ever. So, like, I tell everyone around me that this guy's done this and he leaves without the flask so like i'm like what should i do and everybody working at the restaurant was had been there for a much longer time than i had and they were like oh you should steal it fuck this guy
0: i don't know if it's okay
1: (laughs) everybody even the sous chef was like steal it fuck this guy he's never coming back he won't know where he left it he's so drunk he won't remember so i steal it (laughs) I didn't even want the flask or the liquor. It was the principle of the thing. Um, right. And because, um, you know, I had felt disrespected, whatever, fuck it. Um, come come to think, and then like the next day was a Friday. So it was like a busy day too. And uh, we get through prep and like 30 minutes into rush into like the so It's happy hour. So it's like dollar off oysters. So obviously the place is fucked for the first hour and a half. Um. And the guy comes back and people come up to me and are like, so obviously I told everybody that I had it and that I was going to yeah. steal it or everybody told me to steal it. So everybody knew that I had it. So this guy comes back and is like, hey, do you guys, I have left my flask here. Do you guys have it? And everybody's like, oh, Henry has it. And <laughs> so the chef, who's this big guy comes up to me and he's like do you have this guy's flask and i was like yeah and he was like okay give it to me and they were like oh i was i had to tell him like it's at my house so he's like take your apron off and go get it so i ran home in the middle of service and then got it and ran back and the guy had to wait there obviously they had to tell him that i had stolen it
0: Oh my God. And what are you supposed to, what are they supposed to do? They got to fire you, right?
1: I mean, that's, that's obviously, yeah. Um, so, and it wasn't even like, he didn't yell at me. It was like the disappointed, like, and like, probably the most humiliating thing has ever happened to me.
0: I believe, that. (laughs) I believe that. I believe that. And the crazy part is all those fuckers who told you to do Uh it. They all fucking dime you out. Uh huh. That's that's something that's I don't know the whole story I, that that story makes my stomach hurt. <laughs> but it's like I'm also just like, yeah, those motherfuckers didn't really do anything for you, did no. they? No. I mean they uh, were all like that. That must have been effort. humiliating. Yeah. It's whatever. <sighs> but you learn from that yeah, shit. Yeah, for
1: sure. I mean, like that's what I liked about cooking is like it was one, it was like the best lesson I could have learned, because now I can cook like a motherfucker. And But it was also like, you know, I was 19 maybe when I started cooking and, you know, just a total stoner and had no responsibility and like the, you know, cooking taught me how to work and how to put in, put in a day and like use my hands. And it was interesting and fun at times and, you know, taught me how to think about other people and how to work with other people and how to work to a deadline and, you know, clean up your messes and you know, stay organized and take pride in your work, especially.
0: So it really had a huge impact, even though there were some traumatic moments. Sure. It had some huge huge impact on you as a nightmare. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like, it,
1: it's kind of, like, taught me who I want to be and what kind of jobs I wanted to have because I loved working with my hands. Like, there was nothing worse to me than sitting in an office and filling out a spreadsheet right. all day long. Like, there was no... At the end of the day, like, you know, I'm just filling out spreadsheets. Whereas, like, at least at at least at the restaurant job, people would come up to us at the end of the night of their meal and they'd just be like, that was the best meal I've had, yada, yada. And, like, you guys did a great job. Thank you very much. Like, there was more of an impact. And, like, you could see when people really liked what we were doing.
0: What was the food you liked cooking the most in the restaurant? The
1: last job I had was probably the best kitchen job. It was... uh a wood fire pizza oven. I really loved, I think that's like, I hated working on the lot on the uh like saute just because yeah. it was like, you know, two Versus. of this, one of this, three of that, four of this. And then incoming, you've got like three of those, four of those. And you got to keep track of all that. Whereas like pizza, it was like pizza, 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 pizza. Right. So it was like, you know, and then like getting to work with the pizza. Cause it was really nice stuff. It was like 72 hour proof dough like three days to make the dough so it was really nice and like the wood fire oven was really nice and I was working with my friend uh Evan goat Evan godreau who's just who's I think a private chef now but he was one of my friends I had worked with earlier and you know it was just like working with people I liked and and I really loved working with the pizza oven because it was like the heat of it and like constantly like it was just exciting the whole time because like you can't let the pizza sit for A second too long of a burn right and i don't know just like dancing around the pizza and basically i just really loved that and i think that kind of translates really well into like why i'm doing knives now it's it's it is a lot of changing things but it's very constant of like forging is very similar to working with pizza in my opinion
0: how would you how would you describe that
1: well working with pizza or forging
0: well, no, just making that transition. I mean, how do you see the from the similarities? I mean, I do believe that like baking and Damascus are very similar. Yeah, I think it's like, like, like um, Nick Nick Angier talked about that on the podcast, and he was like heat treating wheat. That's what he called. Yeah,
1: it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I thought it was like you know a repetitive task that you, like you're constantly trying to improve, even though you're doing the same thing over and over again. Like the um, what is the shokunins, like Jiro and all those sushi dudes who are doing the same, same cut and stuff like that. And you're trying to make that perfect pizza and like constantly seeing that if you practice or take your time or do this or that, or the more you do it, the better the pizzas get.
0: That's an unsung, important movie for creative people. I think Jiro dreams of sushi is I'm, I made my kid watch it and, it's interesting because, you know, I think about – you think about that concept of the shokin, mm-hmm. which is – it's more along the lines of that. Just that re- repetition is not bad. Repetition is something that can – you know, it's like – you remember the you remember karate kid where he says, the, you know, wax on, wax off and paint the fence and stuff yeah. like that. And he don't want to do it. And the next thing you know, they're throwing punches at him and he's painting the fence. You know, it's like – it's it's like learning these kind of – it's like this weird muscle memory that you learn – I, I'm fascinated by the fact that there are not as many culinary knife makers who have real experience cooking, and I and I try to back this off because I think a lot of people get nervous because they say you need to go to culinary school or you need to have this you know this particular pedigree. The fact that you like to cook will always make your knives better. Yeah, yeah. How did? What were the first? knives that you made were, what were the first types of knives it's that you always been kitchen knives for me from the beginning how did yeah. you where were you basing you what were you basing your kitchen knives off of oh. you need some you need some sort of basis yeah i
1: mean obviously like i started by copying quentin as much as i could and then i don't know i'm not really sure i mean like the people that i saw at that time like um dmitry popov was a big one
0: Oh yeah, D's the Um, man.
1: So so many people. I mean, um, I mean, just kind of like copying as many people as I could because that's what Quentin basically told me. Like, you know, as you're getting started, you don't know kind of like where to go, so just kind of copy somebody else and see if you like it. And then, like, as you keep going and refining that, I guess stealing more people's stuff and figuring out which people's stuff you like to steal. Um, not saying that Quentin does that. I'm just saying as a, um, you know, like the more you experiment with different people's, you know, like I like this part of the heel off of that person or this swell or this line or that tip shape or, you know, this and that. And you kind of like combine the styles that you like, and then that kind of becomes your own style
0: that's the unsung hard part about being a knife maker yeah. is kind of getting the systems down and then start to, this is one of the crazy things about being in art school is a lot of times, especially when you're younger, art art class is more like a babysitting class. Mm-hmm. But when you get to a higher level, the drawing teachers are usually super duper strict. And they want you to be super strict, and it sucks. And the classes are kind of very rigorous, and they're very, you know, they're very strict. But what you end up learning is the the you learn the fundamentals and the technique, and then that way you once you learn the alphabet and the the code, then you can start to write your. You know, write your essay. You know what I mean. And if you if you can't learn how to if you don't know how to spell, it's hard to write your book. Or hard to or hard to even think about your masterpiece. Yeah. And I th- I think that the hardest part about knife making is that so many people are just looking for that. They see these young guys and they're looking for that instant. You know, like like in uh, the Matrix where he plugs in and all of a sudden five seconds he knows karate. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't think people are willing to. They don't want to wait. Yeah, for sure. One of the things I've thought about you in general, and and spending some time with you at the Center for Mental Arts, which was, we had such a blast. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things I noticed about you, and thinking about your work, and thinking about the designs of your work, and talking with you, and spending time and stuff like that, I feel like there's this real duality that you have. And it's part of your personality, but I also see it in your work. Part of that duality is you have a real, you have a very, very serious and you have a very very serious mind and you have a very very you're very respectful of the work that you're doing and from where it comes from but you also have this playfulness and you're not afraid to be an individual mm-hmm. and i find that that was one of the things it's like you have this duality between this kind of very strict knife making pedigree You've, you know, worked with a lot of great knife makers and you have a very, very, you know, you understand what you're trying to do, but you also want to express yourself and you're not afraid to express yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, like, I mean, I think that
1: at this point, it's kind of like... (sighs) I'm almost in it for a grudge, you know? Like, I'm... Yeah. If I if I fuck around, like I've wasted the time of the people who have helped me so far and like, I want to respect, especially like Clinton's time and like the amount of effort that he like, you know, he takes time. And then that in the end that like, it ends up costing you. Um. Right. So like the investment that he's made in me. And then I think that like the being the individual, I think is more of like, uh, I think I'm doing that more of like a uh, refusing to follow dis- directions more. Right. Than...
0: <laughs> that's this, That's the duality. Yeah. I I feel that tension with yeah. you because even when we were making the uh, the friction folders, yeah. you had an idea. Like in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, let's. I wanted to make. I want to make sure everyone gets across the finish yeah. line. Like that's my job. My my opinion as a teacher is. An instructor or whatever is get everybody across the finish line and i and and i I was so amazed that you had a very you had your knife was very ambitious
1: mm-hmm.
0: frankly to the point where you had the blade and then you had the tab and then you said hey well let's I want to make a curve in the tab and I want to pop a hole in the handle and I want to make it work. you think it'll work and I'm looking at you like, i don't know man, mm-hmm. I'd never done that before, and I was really like I appreciated the fact that you were so willing to try to make it happen. It was like it showed me your individual quality. Meanwhile, you, when we start to forge, you're pulling out your gear and you're striking with authority. Like, I saw how you were hitting, and I'm just like, all right, this motherfucker's been around an anvil before. Mm-hmm. Like, there was a real, like, uh, there was a confidence in what you were doing that I was just like, he wants to put a curve in the tab and he wants to drop a hole in there. I bet he can do Mm -hmm. it. So I I just saw this real duality with the way that you are and the way that you you want to be too, which I appreciate. Thanks. And I see that in your knives too because it isn't just, they're not just Japanese-inspired wah handles with a forged textured face. You do kind of, to go from you have created your own style with your handles and the shapes of the handles and the blades themselves that you wouldn't just say all right this is you know if you didn't have your name on it and you didn't have your face on it you wouldn't just say oh, this is some Japanese guy who's selling stuff like there is definitely you have your own it's that duality mm-hmm. I feel like you that strong duality that you live with and you're funny and you you know you're you're quiet but you like you don't have these like moments of like you know. I don't know if it's gallows humor, but it's your, your, your ability to kind of like, you know, make little jokes at inappropriate times. I, which I appreciate very Thanks.
1: much. Yeah. Yeah. I think like a lot of my, uh, a lot of my style comes to like, thankfully I had a lot of people help me. Um, I have a blacksmithing mentor here in Baltimore named Nick iries And, um, he is a, um, structural, he's a, you know, artistic blacksmith, he makes gates and railings and crosses and large scale things. So, um, he taught me how to forge and everything like that before I was just a, um, stock removal guy. So I started as a stock removal guy and then moved over to forging when I moved here. Um, and I think like a lot of the things he said to me is like, you know, you want to show the way that he approached it was to me, it was more like, you know, show, show, the amount of work that you've put into it by forging it and that's why i keep like my necks really thick because i start with quarter inch steel yeah um and that like i've been trying to get that down for a while and i think i'm i'm starting to kind of like find where i want to be with it um with like the aggressive taper out of the handle like the way that like catch side or um alexander Bezes does his knives and some Hmm. other people like that you know
0: and then you know you are you are local. You are a local boy. You, everything is you're trying to get in, as involved in Baltimore as possible. One of the things that I kind of wanted to circle back around to in in uh, in char the Charleston area is that what it interests me about the fact that you're very you know dutiful to you being from Baltimore, using local wood and being very mindful about Baltimore is when you were in Charleston. The food scene in Charleston is fascinating because it's it's got an incredible history that is not really taught. I mean, at least when I was in school, it wasn't really taught that much. And it was the idea of you know about the Carolina rice. Mm-hmm. The Carolina rice was not strictly a native to America thing. Mm-hmm. There were these you know enslaved people brought over from the gold Co- from the gold coast. Mm-hmm. And they became the Gullah people. They were the Gullah and the Geechee mm-hmm. people, which is the same same uh, culture that twin comes from. Mm-hmm. And these were people who were had major rice. T- these were major rice cultivators, scientists. Yeah. They were like it wasn't just workers. These were like massive scientists who had incredible minds for the the cultivation of rice. Mm-hmm. And that whole Gullah Geechee quarter corridor down the down that the Carolinas is such a rich history that was you know that it, one of the other things about Quentin that's so fascinating and so how rich his history is the Charleston area. It's just you can't not be mindful of it. Yeah, and I wonder if you felt that when you were down there that that kind of responsibleness to local history and stuff. Um...
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, Quentin makes that definitely apparent through his work. He has a lot of pride in his family history, and kind of, like, what it means to be a Southern man is very important to him. And that's kind of why I wanted to... I mean, well, the reason why I moved out of Charleston was partially, you know, environmental, you know, with, like, having to evacuate the city three times a year because of hurricanes, Um, and then, like, also you know, being from Maryland, even though like you'd consider it the South, but like down there I was, you know, I, I lived there for six years and I was still a Yankee. So it was like, right? okay, well, this is going to continue forever. Um, and, you know, like I had been telling people, you know, you can't just say like, oh, I'm from central Maryland. They're like, where's that? So it's always like, I lived between Baltimore and Annapolis. So sometimes I would tell people Annapolis and they'd say, where's that? So you just tell them both Baltimore and I figured, you know, I've been telling people that I'm from the Baltimore area for long enough that I might as well just, you know, like, live there and actually experience what it's like to be from Baltimore. And I knew that, like, Baltimore is a very, it's a very industrial city. Obviously, the history of Baltimore is um, manufacturing and shipping. And there's plenty of infrastructure for what I want to do. I wanted obviously I started knife making in a 12 by 12 plywood shed that would cut catch on fire every time I dropped a knife. So I wanted a production space where I could actually like not worry about setting myself on fire constantly. And I also knew that Baltimore is very serious about local, you know, I think that Baltimore has a certain reputation for being what it is in most people's mind from the major news outlets. But like, I think that that has given us a very underdog kind of mentality. So yeah. I think there's a lot of more appreciation for things that are from here. And, uh, you know, the arts and crafts scene here is pretty incredible and very, very self-supportive.
0: Two of my two of my close friends went to school for art in, in Baltimore. Micah? No, this guy, Matt you know, Mike,
1: Arnold. Micah, the, the school.
0: Uh, Micah. Maybe. Maybe it might have been Mike. Actually, I was actually getting ready for this podcast. I was at a pool party with these guys from actually three people from Baltimore, and I said to them "Like, all right, give me some Baltimore stuff." Mm-hmm. And then they were like, "Ah, oh, well, everything's everything uses Old Bay," mm-hmm. but that was the only thing. Now, one of the things that I I I'm just making the assumption of is, you know, you hear things about Baltimore, and and these are the same the people who talk about Baltimore, who maybe they don't watch the news too much, are the same people who think that. New York is a war mm-hmm. zone and it isn't you know that's the biggest misconception that you know most Americans have had forever is like if you go to New York you're putting your life in your sure. hands and that's not really the case I mean there's just you have millions of people and some of them have personalities yeah. and some of them you know and then if you were to think about how many people are cooped up on top of each other in New York it's it's amazing that there's hasn't been like you know, more bloodshed, to be honest yeah. with you. I mean it's just like it's just the way it is. And I think that because of the wire, I would imagine that Baltimore really had a much worse reputation than it actually has. I would imagine that there's a lot more culture there than and speaking to my friends who went to art school there, there is a lot more culture in Baltimore. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, there's I think that people only pay attention to the gripping news stories of crime. But there really is, you know, it's just like any other city. Every city has crime. And I think to ignore all the other good things about a city and just pay attention to the crime is kind of, you know, seriously unfair.
0: Actually, I was, uh, I took my kid, I've been taking my kid in the city forever and taking her on the subway and kind of just showing her how to take this, you know, taking the subway in New York, it's kind of Mm -hmm. like it's more than just reading the map there's kind of knowing if you get off at this stop and you got to take the escalator up to the next you don't have to do that you can go to this one it's just like there's a lot of like it's the it's like language yeah. and she actually took her friend into, into into the city for the day and then she just I kind of gave her a couple of tips and then make sure she had enough metro card and she hauled ass on the city on the subway the whole day and it was a very proud moment for me because it was just like yeah this kid could be a new year you know i'm it's and it's and it's one of those things that and you know she said to me she's like i didn't you know i didn't have my iphone out on the subway i didn't i didn't you know look like a tourist i knew that where i was going i grabbed my one of her friends was kind of a dope and he just she just grabbed her and like hauled her off the subway to and you know get her to where she had to be and there is something about kind of navigating that the the an urban setting that is, you know, kind of rewarding that a lot of Americans just can't get wrap their heads mm-hmm. around. I was actually looking at uh I was I was I was thinking about I was thinking about uh, uh my friend said to me he's like I said well, tell me something about uh Baltimore and she said oh but everything got old bay. And I was and I thought to myself, what is it about old bay? Now, Chris Cash and and uh and uh and Matt Stagmer and, and Ilya sent me two giant containers mm. of Old yeah. Bay, uh, and I and I thought about, well, what is why is Old Bay a Baltimore thing? What do you know about Old Bay? I mean, Bay? it's just
1: seasoning salt, essentially. I mean, every every yeah. city has a seasoning salt. You know, you've got Zatarains down in New Orleans, and although I don't want to I don't want to offend any of the New Orleans, if there's another seasoning salt, but it's essentially just a seasoning salt that. People have taken into a cult personality,
0: but it's but it, 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 it. There is no other. There is no other regional seasoning as ubiquitous yeah. in to seafood
1: mm-hmm.
0: to seafood as Old Bay. I mean, there isn't. I mean, you can go you can go anywhere in the United States and they have Old Bay in the Scoots.
1: yeah yeah for sure
0: in the and they're not even in the spice area. Like if you go to the seafood yeah. area, they usually all of them got mm-hmm. to Old Bay. And it's ubiquitous to the Chesapeake Bay area, and I was thinking about why it was. And basically, if you look at the, you know, the, the, the seasoning is a mix of celery, salt, salt uh, spices, paprika, black pepper, and stuff like that, and laurel leaves, mustard, cardamom, cloves, and ginger, and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But the history of Old Bay is, is the American story. So Old Bay seasoning is named after the Old Bay line, a passenger ship that, uh, that uh, plied with the water from the Chesapeake Bay from uh, Baltimore— to Norfolk, Virginia. Mm In 1939, a Jewish-German immigrant named Gustav Braun started the Baltimore Spice Company. The origin of the company began in Wertheim, Germany, where Braun was a wholesale spice and seasoning business selling to food industries, seeing an opportunity as spice were uh, especially short on short supply amidst the hyperinflation in the aftermath of World War I. Due to the rising anti-Semitism as the Nazi party rose to power, the company moved to Frankfurt, Germany. However, the night of November 9, 1938, a massive pogrom against Jews known as Kristallnacht uh, led Braun to being arrested by the Nazi soldiers and sent to Buchenwald concentration camp. According to Braun's son, Gustav's wife... Paid a large sum of money to a lawyer for him to be released, and as they had already applied and received American visas, were able to escape with their two children in New York City, and later Baltimore, Maryland, where the Brune family there uh, having uh, brought a small spice grinder, Brune founded the Baltimore Spice Company and produced delicious brand shrimp and crab seasoning, later named Old Bay. It's actually pretty interesting because. In another, article, in another article, it's currently owned by McCormick. That's the reason why it's everywhere, mm-hmm. by the way. Um, it had a, the yellow container. After attempts to find work unsuccessful, Braun decided to launch the Baltimore Spice Company uh, with a focus on the individual spices and seasoning rubs for meat. He soon realized that vendors across the street at the Baltimore Fish Market were in need of spice blends to steam crabs. Uh, convinced that he would make a better blend than the personal concoction of the fishmonger, Braun began uh, crafting an unlikely seasoning that featured hints of. All right, who cares? Hints of that. Um, although many vendors initially rejected his spice blend, the Jewish Times notes that one crab steamer accepted a sample of the seasoning and was instantly hooked, prompting other vendors to buy Braun's blend, originally called Delicious Brand Shrimp and Crab Seasoning. It's a. It's the history. It's. The, I mean, it is. The, it is truly the American mm-hmm. story you know, and it's fat. I just, I find that shit fascinating. So you use, do you, I never, you know what? I never had, I never had crab boils until I was older. And I never ate crab. I never cracked crabs until I was out of college. You got to
1: It's a good, it's the greatest pastime.
0: I, uh, my, my, my neighbor, my good friend and neighbor had, his parents had, had a house on the Jersey shore and they would, put a trap out they were on the water they'd put a trap out and then they would every day they open the trap and then they you know throw the small ones and the blue crabs mm-hmm. and the father said to me he says he says you've never had crabs like this before i'm like no i never had never my dad never had us had we never had fried chicken and we never had crabs mm-hmm. and he and and the, the, the my friend's father says to me well you're going to get sick of them before you get filled up mm-hmm. and that seemed to be the case. Really. I mean, it's so much work. It's so much
1: work, but, you know, you're having conversation. You're having beers. You got corn on the cob, maybe some hush puppies. Right. Just like the nice, you sit outside on a summer day with a, a newspaper on the table. Nothing better. Do you do it often? What's that? Do you do it often? Every summer, yeah. Do you have a place you go, or you Just do like it Just like whenever I'm or... with family or my girlfriend's family.
0: And then they do, you do it as a yeah. family? That scene, that's so... Nice. That sounds like so much more fun because I always assume you just go to a restaurant. You can, yeah. You also do that.
1: That doesn't sound like fun. It's great. I mean, like, you know, you talk about your your day and, like, as you're fishing the little tiny pieces, the little morsels of crab out of the crab, and avoiding the lungs, and some people like the mustard. I'm not into it,
0: you know. The mustard that's like the guts? Yeah, it's like
1: the the gut fluid. Right, right, Um, right. You know, it's just like Reminds me of childhood, just sitting there, you know, sitting at the table and I don't know. It's just a...
0: Did you have that when you were a kid? Your parents had have crab Yeah, balls? we used to
1: go, you'd go like uh, trot lining. You basically take like some turkey necks and attach it to a big long like 100 foot string, put two empty jugs of milk on either side and you just let it sit for like 30, 30 minutes and you get into a John boat, and uh, which is like a tiny little, it's a small boat. And then you have this little PVC kind of like hook shaped thing that you capture the first part of the line. You just have it, you just drive the John boat forward and the line's going over that little hook you've got and you stand there with a net. And as it comes, as the tricky necks come up, the crabs are on them and you just dunk the, you like scoop them up with your net before they can jump off. And then you take them home and boil them in a shit ton of old bay. And then just sit on, sit on the, you know, at your table with some beers and, corn on the cob with some butter
0: that sounds like it was fun. a great time it sounds like fun i've been to a friend another neighbor of mine had a did a a new louisiana style shrimp mm-hmm. boil and that was fun yeah. too still it was like well the shrimp boil wasn't as much work but the crab boil i was just like standing there yeah
1: and if only we threw some then maybe it'd be a little bit easier
0: that's the yeah. move. You gotta you gotta pack it out with something so you're not so as, you're not always no.
1: just doing crab. But I just really love doing the crab. I mean, it's just like, you know, you're working on each little section. It keeps you busy. Keep the dark thoughts away. You know, keep the
0: dark <laughs> thoughts away. The dark thoughts of like having like a, actually, you know what? Speaking of that, is um, there's actually a great episode of Ugly Delicious on Netflix that I really really liked, and it was all about the uh, the Viet Cajun yeah. crawfish. Mm-hmm. That was a fascinating thing because it, when we're talking in terms of like talking about appropriation. It's an interesting concept. when We're talking about food appropriation. Yeah. That's something I wanted to get back. Yeah, into. I
1: think it's. I mean, like this area is great too because we've got such a great uh, Asian population here. You know, you can get all kinds of. You can get that the Viet Cajun. You can get hot pot, Korean barbecue, all kinds of stuff like that here.
0: The Viet Cajun is interesting because it's like a it's like a riff on the concept of the. New Orleans-style crawfish boil. But instead of boiling, making, you know, you make your giant pot and you fill it with whatever spices and Cajun spices and stuff like that, and then you boil them in the water, they're boiling the crawfish and then then tossing them in sauce, which gets you a different... uh, It's a different... It's almost like instead of just, like, boiling it in the water, which David Chang says it doesn't really impart flavor to the meat... You're actually, you're saucing it all, and then that's is a kind of more of an interesting yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. But it was that concept of, you know, we were talking, you were talking before about cultural appropriation. I mean, that was something that was, especially back in the day, and even not that far, there's so many of these, you know, chefs who were, you know, ma- who were incredible, uh, you know, uh, fans of certain cuisines that they really didn't have a, a, a relationship to and it was the question of is it appropriate or not to, to mm-hmm. do that you know uh, there's that famous chef in in Chicago who had some problems he was um, what was his name he did the Mexican food for a long time tell, you know yeah, talking no. About? no there's this famous Mexican there's this famous chef who was doing he had a place called Top La Bombo mm. and he, it was um, Rick Bayless Rick Bayless this is who it is so back in when I was younger and watching Food Network and stuff like that, Rick Bayless was the food the food face of Mexican cuisine mm. in the United States. He was explaining how to, he did his own show, and he was using the correct. He spoke Spanish, and he was doing the correct, you know, all the correct regional foods of Mexico and stuff like that. And there was this huge backlash after t- a long time saying, like, you know, who are you to be doing this kind of food? Yeah. You know, it's and it was it was an interesting concept that a lot of a lot of restaurant people are now really kind of trying to be thoughtful in regards yeah, to it. Yeah, it's like, you know, yeah.
1: making a profit off of somebody else's culture.
0: That was the yeah. issue. That was the issue of like in terms of in terms of how do we see ourselves And just because you like it doesn't mean, you know, I know someone who wanted to open up like a, you know, a taco restaurant and they're, you know, know, they're from Brooklyn Mm -hmm. or something like that. Or it's not really, it's not really their avenue, but they know that the tacos will do well. There are things, there are people who, and is it right or wrong? It makes me wonder about, that might be one of the main reasons why when it comes to knife making, I really don't use, I don't really use terminology that I don't understand yeah, yeah. because I almost, I almost feel like I almost feel like it's it's really it's insincere in my regards and I'm just using words that I don't really have any relationship to or not understand yeah. like I don't say I mean, I'm going to make a couple of nakiri's today and a couple of you know whatever this that and the other thing is because I just don't back in the day when my de- old man came back from World War II he brought back what he referred to as a Gurkha knife a Gurkha knife and it was a, and I never heard of the word Kukri mm-hmm. And I was even saying on Knife Talk, I was calling it a cuckery cook, a or cook, whatever the hell they call it. And I just said my old man used to call it a Gurker knife, and then like, no, 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 that's not the right cor- correct pronunciation, and then it's a it's a cookery. and I'm like, all right, well, I don't know enough about it, and it got to the point where I was just like, I ain't even gonna make one. So. Yeah,
1: I mean, I get that, and I definitely see some people mislabeling some things, but um, and possibly I've done it, but I try to be, you know, I I do pay attention more to like what it should do and what it should look like maybe. And if it doesn't look like that, I'll just call it a chef knife or a slicer or this or that.
0: Well, how is cooking and your experience informed? And you're, you know, you were, you've lived abroad. Mm -hmm. How do you think that has informed you as a knife maker?
1: Ooh, um... I don't know about living abroad. I mean, like, I definitely had a lot more interest in in Chinese chef knives, and I still do. Um, uh, I mean, like, cooking, I definitely got, like, more of, like, the being a fan of the tool as a user of the tool every day. So, like, I guess more of a practical relationship with the tool that I'm making. Um, You know, just being a fan of the... That I'm making, I guess. Yeah,
0: but it's also because you use yeah. it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like, I think that, yeah, like if I was ever to hire somebody, I think like my one of my biggest requirements is not necessarily knife making experience, but rather like cooking experience. I think is much more important.
0: Yeah, I, it's it's it is interesting because it's cooking every night has changed the way I, I make knives even Definitely, to this day. Yeah. Like I really. I mean, I used to push the nine-inch nine-inch chef knife just because that's what I used in culinary yeah. school, and then as I got older and I started to realize that like it isn't as necessary, especially for a home cook, I really kind of push people towards the eight-inch K-tip, my eight-inch chef knife, just because it just seems much more. I use it way more. I, I I get more pleasure out of it, and I and I and I think that that's one of the biggest takeaways in regards to being a culinary knife maker is uh, you don't have to be the best chef. You don't have to be, you know, the best chef in the world, but you got to like to cook. And then once you like to cook, then you know what you Mm -hmm. like.
1: Yeah. And I think like, you know, I I can pick up a knife and know whether it's balanced right. and, And that comes from cooking experience and not necessarily knife making.
0: What do you like in it? What do you look for in a knife? Um in your knife what do you look for that you impart in your knives Um, I definitely think about like well I mean at this point in my
1: knife making I'm really trying to like scratch more of a creative itch I'm trying to push a boundary of what I've done before and I'm definitely thinking more of it in my blacksmithing even though I'm not a blacksmith like in a more blacksmithing kind of trying to create more interesting three-dimensional shapes and working the steel differently. Um, I mean, I think that the chef, the chef knife part of it, I just, and, and that comes, I don't know. I try to, I try to get the balance really nice. Um, I've been forging with uh, quarter inch steel for a long time. And with that, now I can like make my tangs round, my hidden tangs round, like an integral, but with non-integral knives um, and then that gives me a really nice like balance in the handle. So I've got like a lot of material in the handle, and then
0: I see what you're saying. So it's you have a, you have more tang in the handle, so it makes it a little bit more weighty. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's counterbalanced a little bit more, and then you know, like my thick necks only extend to where my heel begins because if I keep it going farther, I'll grind into those.
0: That makes a lot of sense because. You know, if you were to just be generalize, hidden tang knives are usually blade forward yeah. knives. Like they're heavier on uh-huh. the blade side. So for you to be able to kind of like counterbalance that by throwing more weight in the tang, I think that's a fascinating thought. Yeah, I mean, and it's a it's a great it's a great way to, to to create a you know to 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 problem solve.
1: Yeah, I mean, I only really started making hidden tangs because I thought that polishing the spine and the- and the, uh, the rivets was for the birds, you know, like I, I thought that that was just like, you know, you've got the, the hard spine and the hard, yeah. the hard pins and they create a dome when you're trying to sand them at the same time as the handle.
0: It is, it is for the birds. That's why I only use brass Corby's. I don't fuck with, uh, stainless steel. nickel or stainless. Cause I don't, I hate those. Yeah. domes. And I just like, I, oh, you're right. it is And for the I birds. shape all my
1: handles off the knife, which just makes it so much easier because I don't have to run into the heel as I'm going on the underside. Right. Or you don't right. get, like, right. one right. side higher than the other, because you're doing it, like, upside down. So are your handles all the, the the way you bed the tang? Is it all standard? Uh, No. Unfortunately, I'm not that good of a blacksmith yet. I still have to, or I'm not that good of a bladesmith yet. I'm, I am I need to get, like, um, after going to CMA, honestly, like, that has changed the way I've thought about forging as well for, like, the way that Pat has that shop set up, where it's just like, prof- like I don't know, professionally, or you know, like the whatever word you want to use for the way that Pat Smith, the that Pat does everything, just like blew my mind, and it's like, oh, like my shop can be set up in a way that actually helps me.
0: Um, Pat has figured out a way to take away the trappings of having to be in business. Yeah. And he focuses that shop basically completely on efficiency of yeah. learning. And just like, so I
1: need to get like, you know, kiss. I need to get like um swages and kiss blocks and all kinds of stuff. And maybe in the future, I'll be able to actually standardize everything. But for right now, yeah. I mean, all my necks are different sizes. So I don't make like a standardized handle. Um, right. That'd be cool. But I think that like the artistry of it, I think is a little bit making everything a little unique is maybe a little bit more interesting to me.
0: That's, that's one of the things I notice about your knives is, is they, they all have the same personality, but they're, they're all, every one of them is just a slightly yeah. different. So tell me about the new shop and what's next
1: for him. Yeah. Hatt. So we are currently in negotiation with our new landlord. Um, we have our, we have the primary lease kind of like sent to us. We just have to do kind of like a negotiation on, we're basically trying to get it re trying to get it amended and just added a few extra things to cover our asses. Um, but it will, if everything goes well, be at um, Union Brewing, which is the big, I think one of the biggest, if not the biggest brewery brewery in Baltimore, it's this, uh, it's an old Sears manufacturing plant that they've renovated and turned into a brewery and then like maker spaces. So myself, my mentor, and two other people are going to be kind of like sharing this big 3,500 square foot space.
0: Now, which mentor is this? This is Nate. This is, N- this is uh, my
1: blacksmithing mentor. Yeah. Okay. And um, so the three of us basically, and it's so it's the three of us and then a CNC guy. So the three of us who are not CNC guys are going to basically set up, like, our workshops plus a school um, for woodworking, blacksmithing, and knife making. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it'll be really great. And it'll actually be, like, set up in a way. Because I moved into my current shop in 2019 and got my business started at the same time. So it's always kind of been, like, by the seat of my pants. My workshop has never been set up and uh this will be you know having it set up exactly because it's a raw industrial space we're going to be running electric running plumbing building walls so it'll be exactly how we want it and uh we'll just be like a all 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 around better space
0: that sounds yeah. exciting
1: just you know a shit ton of work but exciting you yeah. know
0: when do you think you're going to get it up and running? At we're trying to look at uh,
1: September 15th as a move-in date, or maybe October 1st, and then it'll be six weeks of building out.
0: That's right around yeah. the corner.
1: So we basically we, wow. we basically have like three months of free rent uh, to build out the space, and then you know go from there.
0: How much work do you think you need to do? To you think the three months to get? Yeah, out of time? I think we're going
1: to be able to do it in six weeks because we'll get like electricians to we'll either run the electric and then have electricians kind of like do the final thing where they just feed the wire into the outlet or more or less. We're not really sure. i building right. walls. We got to build like, you know, cause there's, there's like an ice cream shop and a distillery and a music studio and a climbing gym in the same building. So we have to like keep the noise of the power hammers down and, um, make like a grinding room and a clean room and stuff like
0: that. um, you know that power hammer is going to knock some of those kids off the climbing well, wall. Well, yeah, I've I've
1: I'm, I've got a Clay Spencer, <laughs> and then I'm getting a uh, I think it's like a 50 kg Stenko. Um, wow. So yeah, we're doing a little move up in the going from my ramshackle Clay Spencer that like blows itself apart every year. Do you find that you have like pieces falling off yours all, all the time?
0: I have a tire hammer that a couple pieces fell off and I went into total panic yeah. mode. But the reason why I liked having a tire hammer was I felt like every part I could fix. myself. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah I also built that was, I also built mine and, uh, but I was like a, a class where it was like 14 of us and they're basically like, okay, who can weld here? And like, was that
0: at Clay Spencer's place? No,
1: that was at Virginia Institute of Blacksmithing down in Waynesboro, Virginia. Oh. Um, but it is the Clay Spencer hammer and the Clay Spencer class. Um, uh, but it was basically like you know Jim Bob from down the road was right. was the primary welder on this machine that could fucking kill you at any time.
0: So I've had who pl- can weld is not what you want to hear in the beginning
1: yeah, of the class, especially about with the welding. I have, I've had I had the top die of my power hammer fly off halfway while i was forging and it threw oh, yeah. the thing like a baseball one foot away from my shoulder
0: i don't even want to talk about the things that have happened my power hammer my tire hammer parts have fallen off that should not yeah. have fallen off and cursing has ensued yeah. and but,
1: yeah you now know. they're telling you like yeah if this spring comes out it could kill you and you're like great it's right yeah. at high level
0: right <laughs> yeah that's something I'm so I have to build a cage for that spring. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, but I'm always like lo- in between heats. I'm always looking. I'm always greasing. I'm always kind of giving the once over. So I have marks on where everything's supposed to be sitting. And yeah, blacksmithing and forging is not for the. I mean, fate yeah. of heart. Does yours ever shock <laughs> you? This, like, shit happen. Mine no, thank me. God. I, oh, that sometimes not I
1: good. get. I think that one of the current lines on the on the little light switch that turns it on. Is either loose or it's like friction from the thing going. But every once in a while, I'll brush up against it and it will shock the shit out of me.
0: The only thing that shocks me is on one of my grinders, I have a, uh, I have a, um, like a Pyrex dish, a Pyrex plate on the, on the platen. Mm. And if I have the, if I have a Scotch Bright pad oh, yeah. on there, Scotch Bright wheel on there, uh, Scotch Bright belt on there while I'm on that, that, uh, that I fucking get. I, I can see the electricity. Yeah. Like you know, if you get close enough, you can see the sparks yeah. shooting off. It <laughs> kind of scares the shit out of me. But you know, that's life. This life is a is a is mm-hmm. a knife maker, I guess. Henry Hyde, Han, Hy, Henry Hyde, Hyde handmade. Is Hyde handmade knives or Hyde handmade? Hyde handmade
1: knives. But the my Instagram handle is Hyde handmade.
0: I wear your shirt with Thank pride. You. you gave me a shirt. I wear it. I love it. I love your shirt. I'm very happy that you came on the podcast. It was a really a pleasure to meet you. I hate the fact that you lost. Well, your you friction folder is gone. I'm gonna have to do some. No, like I'm that. gonna I make.
1: I'm gonna. I got those Baltimore tokens. I got the Baltimore City tokens. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna make one out of some Damascus that me and Quentin made together.
0: Nice. Yeah. That sounds great. Well, you told me that it, it, it fell out of your pocket or something like that. Some. I'm, I'm gonna keep my eyes open when I go down to Johnstown next week, and I'm gonna put the word out to. Go to go down keep to Pizz- Pizza Deli
1: Six Pack and see if they've seen it.
0: Yeah, it's probably like in someone in the river, <laughs> most likely. If you know I mean, Johnstown. I just might no take, no take the, I just might take the
1: folding class next year again if you're if that's the one you're teaching.
0: I'm gonna be I'm only gonna teach the I'm only gonna teach the friction folder class at the Center for Metal Arts, which I'm actually going down this Friday this day, the day that this comes out is I'm on my way to Johnstown, PA. I'm gonna be down at the Center for Metal Arts. And I will be doing it again. You're gonna to have to keep your eye open for the Center for Mental Arts when they open up. We do it two times a year. I'm only doing it at CMA. I'm not doing it anywhere else. Um, and I'm actually next week. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have Pat. It's an honor to talk about. Honor
1: to be before Pat and just on in general. Well, I've been listening for a long time. Long time listener.
0: Long-time listener, first-time caller, it was a pleasure meeting you, and I appreciate your support, and you've always been such a supportive guy, and, I, and I'm, I'm fascinated by your journey, and, and I just wish you nothing nice. but the best.
1: You know, I remember the first time I saw you, it was at um, the night before we went to the class, I went to that brewery downtown, and I was just sitting at the bar, and I see this, like, tired mass come by me this man with huge bags under his eyes. And I look over and it's you and you're sitting there with yeah. Pat and, uh, whatever his. Oh, you should,
0: you should have said, well, hello. I didn't
1: want to, I knew you guys were doing your thing and didn't want to be like, Hey guys. Oh,
0: I didn't even know, but tired, big bags under my eyes is, is that's, that's the, uh, the that's, trademark. that's the, that's yeah. The trademark. Yeah. B- bags under your eyes is yeah. the trademark. So next week we're going to have on Pat Quinn, we're going to talk about the the uh, Cambria Iron Conference, yeah. which is on September seventeenth, ladies and gentlemen. If you if this is your last chance, you got a week. Get on board with the Cambria Iron the C- C- Cambria Iron Conference at the Center for Mental Arts in Johnstown, PA. Get a hold of it because it's going to be the first, and it's going to be a, a extraordinary experience to be able to see those giant hammers working. They're going to be making sculpture. We're going to do a whole show talking about him, and I think Zach Noble is going to be down there. And I want to, We're going to do a whole interesting. It's going to be the week before the, the 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 conference, and I'm sure he's going to be filled with nerves. And it's going to be really interesting to hear his perspective on what's the, what the expectations are. But I cannot thank you enough, Henry, for being here. Thank you for being flexible with your time i know you're a busy guy and uh we wish you nothing but the best guys go follow henry it's hide handmade on instagram he's a great follow there's going to be a lot of great stuff going down in baltimore so give him a give him a chance and give him a a follow and you know cross your fingers for the all the orioles because sometime they're going to do yeah
1: i saw them beat up the, the the red sox like 15 to 11 something like that
0: it's been bad. baseball's been weird the last yeah. couple of months. I must say the last month has been a, a, a roller coaster that I'm I'm not prepared for, but here's to the here's to the postseason and uh it could be anybody's game at yeah. this point. Honestly, I mean it could be anybody's game. I I'm not confident the Yankees are going to take it. I'm not confident that they're going to blow the doors off anybody at this point. They got their shit pushed in by uh, the fucking A's this past weekend. The the Reds, the last place Red Sox gave them a whipping and you know, you never know. I, yeah, you never I've been know. growing.
1: I grew up with watching the Orioles just get statistically eliminated from the MLB. So, I'm not. I'm not holding my breath.
0: Well, I am a fan of Baltimore. I'm a fan of the Orioles, and I do like getting chirped at by uh, Matt Stagmer and Ben Sechrist Always chirp at me when the Orioles do hmm. well. So, all those Oriole fans, I I am with you, and uh, we will see you guys next week with Pat Quinn. Henry, thanks again, and I really appreciate your time. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers.